Well, let's turn back to John chapter 14. have the words we have read. I'm going to read just the first three verses of John 14 again as we begin to look into God's word. Jesus tells his disciples, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many dwelling places, if it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Well, every true Christian desires to be a help and a comfort to his brethren in a time of difficulty. And these are difficult days in which we live with uh, the political situation, with the financial situation, with various, various difficulties. And uh, we want to be, I want to be, an encouragement and a help in trouble, uh, but it is not an easy task. To be able to speak with true sympathy and to be able to speak effectively to those who are sorrowful or fearful is a difficult task. And the more that our troubles press upon us, the more difficult it is to help one another. So with this evening, we're going to be looking at the master comforter because the Lord Jesus Christ is an expert in comfort and encouragement. If you look back for a moment at uh, Isaiah chapter 61, I'll, uh, I'll just reinforce this reality about our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the great comforter. Of course, that's what he, he calls himself when he says he's going to send another comforter. He's the original comforter, the first comforter of his people. And so in Isaiah 61, we have this uh, statement of Isaiah pointing forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what God puts in Isaiah's mouth to reflect the heart and attitude of the Lord Jesus. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Now you may say to yourself, well, that's, that's wonderful. I'm, I'm glad that the Lord Jesus Christ is, a, is the great comforter of his people. 
maybe maybe at this present time you don't see any troubles or difficulties, but I would I would say this: uh, store up the comforts of God's word, because man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward, and we will we will have need of God's comforts in due time. So we're turning to our Lord's words to his disciples in John 14, 1 to 3, uh, Christ's call to faith. And first of all, I want to set out for you the prohibition and its cause. There's in the very opening of our text, a prohibition of the Lord Jesus Christ and its cause. Beginning of verse one, the very first phrase is the command. Do not let your heart be troubled. Do not let your heart be troubled. The Lord Jesus spoke these words to these disciples, the uh, the 11 especially. It was not really directed at Judas Iscariot because there was no comfort for Judas Iscariot. There was no, there was no relief from the trials that he would experience. He's, he's experiencing those troubles now. But this was for the 11 disciples. And he had good reason to say to the disciples, do not let your heart be troubled. There were various reasons. First of all, they were about to go through a very awful ideal uh, ordeal. Uh, they were already troubled, but it was just the beginning of the troubles that they would experience for the next three or four days. Uh, they, were, they were already troubled. Uh, the words are calling them to stop allowing something which was already taking place. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Stop letting your hearts be troubled. Uh, in other words, it, we would put it in, the, in this way. Uh, get a hold of yourself. Get a hold of yourself. You're experiencing these uh, tremendous upheavals in your soul. Get a hold of yourself. Don't let it continue. These words were tender words, though. These were not words of rebuke so much as they are tender words of direction for a group of men, uh, a group of real men who were greatly alarmed. There are many reasons for the alarm that the uh, uh, apostles were experiencing. First of all, there was great trouble and danger politically. Great trouble and danger politically. The Sadducees and their confederates wielded great power, civil power. They were the leaders in Israel. And um, they were unafraid to join themselves to other ungodly people. Now, I, I mentioned the Sadducees because the Sadducees, you'll, you'll find as you uh, think back through uh, the book of Acts, that the Sadducees were really the ones who were pushing against Christ's apostles. They uh, were the ones who gathered together because the apostles were teaching in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And of course, you know, the, the Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in any supernatural. They were the rationalists of their day. They only believed in the things that appealed to the five senses. And they they didn't want people teaching others the resurrection from the dead. So they were persecuting. They were the chief persecutors of the apostles. And you see that in the life and ministry of the apostle Paul. How uh, he, was, he was set before the, uh, the Sanhedrin. 
and he, he says, I'm on trial for the hope of the resurrection from the dead. And that was uh, the Pharisees said, oh, maybe an angel has spoken to him. The Sadducees were all in an uproar because Paul was teaching the resurrection. Well, the, the Sadducees were the prime movers in the kind of persecution that the apostles were going to experience. And they were very happy to join themselves to the uh, to the political machine and to try to accomplish their agenda through the political machine. And uh, the disciples were in constant danger because primarily of the Sadducees and their opposition to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this was, uh, this was one reason why the disciples were concerned. That's why they were worried. That's why they had questioned themselves so many times in the upper room for fear of the Jews. So that was one of the things that disturbed them, that caused their hearts to be troubled. Secondly, the Lord Jesus Christ had warned them that he was going to suffer the most horrible death they could imagine. They had been told by Jesus numerous times that the Son of Man is going to Jerusalem, he's going to be rejected, he's going to be opposed, and he's going to be placed in the hands of the Gentiles and then crucified. The crucifixion was a gruesome death, a slow, torturous death. And um, the, the uh, Roman government had a law that no Roman should ever hear the word crucified. That was, it was such an awful death that they didn't want them to even have to think about crucifixion. It was the capital punishment for the worst of criminals. Now, the, the, the gospel writers, uh, looking back, again, these were men who, many of them were eyewitnesses, um, John and Matthew and uh, Mark to some extent, because Mark was in Jerusalem at the time of the crucifixion. Uh, Luke was not. But these were men who were eyewitnesses and they, uh, they now are being brought by the Lord Jesus to the fact that the hour is coming now. It's before uh, they were worried uh, when Jesus is going up to Jerusalem, he's telling them and they're saying, why are you going up to Jerusalem? They were just seeking to kill you and now we're going? And one of the disciples says, well, let's go with him and, and die with him. Uh, and it, it begins to impress them more and more. One of the things that must have impressed them was the realization of the pressure upon Jesus' own spirit. Sometimes someone knows that something bad is happening in a family and uh, they are able to keep, as the British say, a stiff upper lip. They're able to hold themselves together and not uh, give vent to all of the trouble that they feel in their souls. But when, when once one sees a, a father or a mother ahead of the family who begins to be troubled, then the, the children and, and the other family members, they begin to feel much more keenly. Well, this is an awful thing that's going to happen in our family. This is an awful trouble which is happening. And as we'll see in a moment, this, this was registered in the face and in the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, and so it began to impress itself more and more upon the disciples. The, the gospel writers uh, didn't hide the fact that they didn't understand Jesus' words. As he takes them aside and he tells them, the Son of Man is to go up to Jerusalem, 
and he is to be rejected, and he is to be uh, crucified. Well, they heard the words, but it seems as though they really didn't grasp it. They didn't know why this had to happen. They, uh, Peter, you, you know how Peter uh, opposed the idea, this shall never happen to you. But uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is pressing it more and more upon them and making them to understand this is really going to happen. And so the awful reality that Jesus was going to be executed an awful death as a criminal began to impress itself upon them and it was going to come to pass quickly. So this is, uh, this is one of the things that Jesus had to say, don't let your hearts be troubled. They had these political enemies, and they had Jesus uh, pressing upon them the fact that he was going to suffer a horrible, the horrible death of crucifixion. And then there was the news that one of them would betray him. And again, we're so familiar with the gospel records that perhaps we don't feel or understand what the disciples must have felt. Uh, you know how... The gospel writers tell us that uh, that they began to ask each one to the Lord Jesus. They said, I? They're trying to think, who could possibly do such an act? What man among us is so hardened in unbelief that he would do this? They couldn't imagine. They had no idea that it was Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot was enough of a hypocrite, enough of a pretender, that nobody, nobody picked it out. Nobody said, I... Oh, I knew it. I knew it was Judas. And interesting, isn't it, that, that Judas, Judas is told by Jesus to go out and, and do what he, came, what, what he, what he was to do. And uh, the rest of the disciples thought that Jesus told him to go give something to the poor or that he should buy something for the feast. Nobody said, I knew it. I knew it. Judas was a hypocrite. Judas was the, the betrayer. Nobody, nobody thought that way. But Jesus. And perhaps Judas himself, but Judas put on a bold face. And he effectively fooled the fellow disciples. So Jesus tells them that one of them would betray him. That was just about unthinkable to them. And, and it's one of those things that caused greater pressure upon these men. That, that caused their hearts to be in turmoil. Uh, they, they didn't, um, and they didn't think that they themselves were in any danger of uh, an inclination to fall away from Jesus because Jesus said, uh, is, it, is it Mark's gospel, I think, where he says, uh, it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and scatter the sheep, you will all fall away. And you know what Peter's responses though everyone falls away I will not I'm willing to die with you and Peter was genuine he wasn't he wasn't playing a game he really meant it but this is what they're being told one of them would betray him the rest of them would all fall away you will all fall away from me and they all of course uh, as the gospel says uh, they all say the same thing Peter says I, I won't I won't abandon my Lord I'm willing to die with you and they were convinced that they would remain true but this again from the lips of the Lord Jesus when the Lord Jesus says you're all going to fall away from me that had to have some effect 
upon their souls so that they were troubled. Here's another, another thing, a fourth thing that uh, caused this turmoil in their hearts is they were about to be left by Jesus. They were about to be left by Jesus. Perhaps it's hard to, to imagine what his leadership, what his company must have been. He was, the, he was a holy man. He was a godly man. He was a man of the scriptures. He was their leader. And the idea that we should be without Jesus was virtually unthinkable. Unthinkable. Now it would seem that all the benefits they were deriving from his presence were about to end. And this was evidently, in part at least, being taken to heart by them. If you had been there with them, you can imagine it. I think it's not, not, a, not a wrong thing to imagine, but imagine uh, what their faces must have looked like as they hear these pronouncements of Jesus one after the other. You would have, you'd have seen faces contorted with wonder and confusion, perplexing thoughts. You know, when we receive this kind of bad, overwhelming news, our souls are like a stormy sea. Or in another metaphor I, I think is helpful is uh, the feeling that you get when you have been driving down the highway and uh, one of the one of the red and blues pulls up behind you with the siren going and you're trying to think, well, what did I, what did I do wrong? What is he pulling me over for? Uh, what, what's, what's happening here? So it's like that. It flashes in the soul and causes emotions to rise and jostle with one another for attention. And the disciples were, were trying to understand what does it all mean? And what are we going to do about this? Often, this kind of uh, perplexity results in fear. Fear is the companion of the troubled heart. And that's what these disciples had. They had a troubled heart for very good reason. So Jesus tells them, do not let your heart be troubled. Get a grip on yourself. Pull it together. Um, now, a troubled heart is not essentially sinful. It's not essentially sinful. It is the natural response of the soul to immense pressure, immense troubles. It's appropriate for responsible individuals to be concerned about their circumstances. I, uh, I remember... There are a lot of uh, memories I could bring up, but one in particular I will, because I don't think it'll do any any harm. Uh, my my family and I were on vacation, and we were at a lake about to go fishing. And my daughter Lisa, whom you have met, fell down at, in a uh, in some kind of a fit. I've never seen her in that condition before, but all of us were awestruck by the fact that this little girl whom we had ever seen healthy was now lying on the ground shaking. And I was worried about her uh, biting or swallowing her tongue. And what can we do for her now? We were in the middle of uh, a park and I sent my son 
my oldest son, I said, go up there to the office and get some help. And he took off like a rocket because we were really worried about this little girl and what's going to happen to her now. Well, if I had stood by and said, oh, well, you know, she's having some kind of a seizure, I'll probably have to do with her hormones changing in her butt. And no, no way, I was just, I was, and we were all taken with alarm. Responsible individuals ought to be concerned about their circumstances. And we ask, what shall I do now? What's going to happen next? These are natural responses. They are the kinds of questions a godly person will often ask in response to troubles, don't you? Have you, have you, you know, speaking to a number of uh, saints who have had a lot of experience, have you've had that kind of experience? Imagine somebody would try to convince you, well, you know, you're just being sinfully unbelieving. Well, that may have been the case to some extent, but there's also a responsible, godly Christian attitude that says, okay, now what's my responsibility? How do I act in faith? With these, it's an appropriate kind of response, of concern, questions that a godly Christian will ask. Jesus himself, remember, was sometimes troubled, and that's that's uh, uh, perhaps one of those aspects of the personality of Jesus we don't often think about, but it's there right in the Gospels. Uh, let's turn a couple of pages over here. And look at John chapter 11 and verse 33. Now, the, here is a situation in which Jesus was in complete control, was as he always is. But here's a, here's a case where this disposition of trouble is, we're told this is how Jesus responded. John eleven thirty three. Jesus is at the uh, coming to the place where Lazarus is buried, and uh, she is weeping. His sister is weeping, and John records when Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. Exact same word used in John fourteen one. He was troubled, and uh, he asked where. Have you laid him? And so the Jews, a little bit later in the text, were asking whether Jesus could have prevented Lazarus' death. You notice Jesus sees the, the sisters weeping and Jesus himself weeps. So the Jews were saying, verse 36, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of, a, of the blind man have kept this man from also from dying? So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb, and the stone was lying against it. So here is, again, Jesus feeling the pressure of the situation, deeply moved in his spirit. Well, when Jesus thinks of his approaching ordeal, closer to John 14, 1, we find again the thoughts of the approaching ordeal in John 12, 27. This is what 
John witnesses and the apostles hear, this is what Jesus says. Now my soul has become troubled. Again, the same word. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. So Jesus feels the pressure of his approaching ordeal. He feels it in his soul. In John 13, uh, 21, we have one more incident where uh, we have a record of Jesus experiencing this. And again, Jesus is looking forward to this ordeal. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And that was a reality. Jesus says it's going to happen. Jesus realizes that this is the hour and Jesus is troubled in spirit. At the light, in the light of the betrayal and the folding away of the people of God. So these are the kinds of things which Jesus experienced at this time in his life. And we almost, we almost never see anything like this in the Lord Jesus. He's the man who's a leader. He's the man who's self-possessed. But now there are things which are so significant, so weighty, that Jesus actually experiences something which is, which proves the true humanity of Jesus. I remember one man preaching and he said, God never has a bad day. And it's true. God never has a bad day. Uh, and as the divine Messiah, Jesus never had a bad day. But as a human being, a true human made like us in every respect except for sin, Jesus was troubled. So Jesus knows what trouble feels like. And Jesus addresses his disciples with all of these problems in front of them, and he tells them, do not let your heart be troubled. That's the prohibition, and this, these are the causes. Second thing we want to look at this evening is the remedy to this condition of soul. The remedy to this condition of soul. Also in verse 1, his command, believe God, believe also in me. I'm going to say a couple of things about this. This double command joined to the first command. Uh, and, and one of the things is the translation. It's, uh, we're, uh, from time to time in the scriptures, we're going to be faced with problems of translation. Since some of us have one translation or another, it's got to be dealt with to some extent. Um, so much of what we hear from people is colored by their face and voice. And sometimes I think you read your Bible if you're like me and you say, oh, I wish I knew what that sounded like. And sometimes I knew exactly what my mother's mood was by the tone of her voice, and she was very demonstrative of faith. So when she when she was angry, when she was frustrated, it registered in every fiber of her being. But here we have words without a voice and without a face. So that, that puts us at a certain liability. And what augments this is that there are five, at least five possible translations of these two Statements of the Lord Jesus, believe in God, believe also in me. It could be just statements like this. You believe in God, you believe also in me. As if Jesus says, look, 
grab it, hold yourself together, get a hold of yourself. Remember, I know you believe in God, and I know you believe in me. So, don't let your heart be troubled, you see? It could be translated that way, or it could be questions. Sometimes questions are bold statements. For example, if somebody was going to a particular store with high prices, I might say it this way. Are you going there? You're not going there, are you? You see, at that, at while it's a question, it's a bold statement as well. Many times in the Bible, questions are those kinds of things. They're the strongest statements. And it could be that Jesus is saying, you believe in God? That would be a perfectly good translation. You believe in me? And you're letting this get to you? Or it could be, uh, like some of the translations have, like the King James and the New King James, you believe in God, believe also in me. And I, I happen to think that that is the best translation. The, the, the word order seems to, to warrant that kind of translation. So this, but this much is clear. However you understand the translation, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ states that faith in God and faith in himself are the remedy to the difficulties that they are experienced. Faith in God and faith in himself, whether Jesus is saying, uh, you believe in God, statement, uh, believe also in me, imperative. Uh, faith is the remedy for a heart field filled with fears, doubts, and perplexities. So dear brethren, this is the way we need to think about the things that trouble our hearts. The things that make us say, oh, what's going to happen next? Ah, I must believe in God. Like, the, like uh, Cooper says in his, uh, in his poem, in his hymn, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his works in vain. Believe in God, believe also in me. That's the, that's the proper translation, and that's the nature of the remedy. The remedy is faith. Now, it's not faith just as, a, uh, as some kind of a, a magic pill. I, I take a lot of... You know, hope, hopefully you won't misunderstand. I take a lot of magic pills. My wife knows a lot about the things I need to keep myself healthy, and I, she makes sure that I have all my pills from Sunday to Saturday in a little box, and every morning I pop one open, I put out the contents, and I take it with my orange juice. I don't really know what all those pills do. I don't. I trust my wife. And in that sense, I, I think of them as magic. They're going to work, and they work for scientific reasons, yes. But faith is not a magic pill. It is not a magic pill. Faith is trust in God. An adequate basis for confidence and trust. That's what faith is. That's the nature of the remedy. It's an active trust and dependence of one who is in great need. So when we have troubles and perplexities and our minds are swirling, faith is the remedy to the perplexities of the soul. But it's, it's faith which has an object. Faith believes in one 
who is able to overcome the troubles. Faith is uh, faith is uh, is the trust in one who is able to guide us through our troubles. Faith is the one who is able to assist the needy in our particular distress. So, so Jesus says, you believe in God, don't forget it. But cause your faith, exercise your faith in God as the one who is able to help you through all of these things. We used to say this a little sentence, I don't know where it came from. If God brings you to it, God will bring you through it. It's a nice sound to it, but it's, a, it's, it's truth. It's trust in God. And the greater our need and the greater the danger, the greater the perplexity and the trouble is the greater the faith is needed. I was trying to think of an illustration. I think I came up with one this afternoon. If you don't, if you don't like it, let me know. Not immediately, but maybe at the door you can tell me that I could do a better job with this illustration. I want you to imagine that you've decided to go to Trinity Baptist Church for a conference. That's not unreasonable. And uh, you're not going to go by car. No, you're, you're going to go from Newark, New York Penn Station to Newark Penn Station. And I'm going to meet you there. And I'm going to help you get to Trinity Baptist Church. Now, Newark is one of those places... Uh, like a lot of places in New York where you don't want to be alone without any kind of a guide. But imagine you get off the train at Newark Penn Station and there's a tumult going on in the hallways. There are people yelling at one another. There were people threatening one another. There are people fighting with one another. And you have to go from there to the place of safety. And I tell you, look, don't worry. I know this looks really bad, and it is really bad, but I know my way around, and I promise you I'm going to get you there safely. When you first step out of that train, you hear all that noise, you say, oh, I should have stayed in Brooklyn. But you have one who's promised to help you, and that evokes faith, and that's what you need in order to make your way through. So, it is the object of your faith, you see, the object of the one you are believing in who will help to calm your fears, and if you can trust that person, then you can deal with all of the perplexing thoughts. That is what faith is like. That's the remedy of faith, and the object of faith, of course, is very important. You wouldn't, you wouldn't get into Penn Station in Newark and hear a lot of noise and then just seeing a person in plain clothes looks just like everybody else, says, hey, look, I, I'll help you. There's trouble here, but follow me. No, you're not going to follow a stranger like Jesus says. You won't follow the voice of strangers. You want the voice of one whom you know. Well, that's the remedy of faith. That's the nature of the remedy. It's trust in one who deserves your trust who deserves the credit of your confidence, that's, that's faith. And the object of our faith, according to our text, is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's God, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus starts with their faith in God and calls them to particular faith in himself. As it were, the first 
call to faith. It's a stepping stone. It's a sure stone. You, you believe in God, believe also in me. That's what Jesus is saying. And he reminds them that they had a very real faith in God, God the Father, God who Jesus has been teaching them about. And what Jesus, in essence, is saying, you, the faith that you have in God is real and valid and helpful. You ha you're not a hypocrite. You're not pretending to believe in God. You have rejected the kind of religion which is, only exists between your ears, in your skull. There are people whose faith is really just logical syllogisms in their mind, statements that they regard as statements of fact, but it goes no further it never issues in a untroubled heart. You've rejected that kind of religion. You've rejected religion for financial gain. There, there are plenty of people who think of religion only in terms of getting things that they want. That's not a very good faith when everything is swirling around you. Then what you have in the bank or what you can get from others is relatively unimportant. But you have a demonstrated, active faith in God. You believe in his inspired word. You believe in his promised salvation. You believe in his faithfulness. You believe in his power and sovereign rule. That is a definite remedy against a troubled heart. And Jesus says, since you believe in God, Believe also in me. Now, there are reasons why Jesus says this. Uh, let me set out a couple of things about the reason why Jesus says, believe also in me. Well, the circumstances they were facing were a discouragement to the faith that they had. It was a discouragement. The things which were being revealed to them were enough to make them wonder if they really understood God's plan of salvation at all. And you see from the way that they reacted to the death of the Lord Jesus and hiding in the upper room from the, uh, from the Jews. I'm not saying that they shouldn't have hid from the Jews, but that was an evidence of the weakness of their faith. And they, they, they weren't sure. They understood why did Jesus have to do this? Why did this have to happen? Well, we know why it did now. We look back and we see it from the... Uh, perspective of the revelation of God's purpose and plan. We see Jesus risen from the dead. We know Jesus is at the right hand of God. Uh, but they, at that point, did not understand those things. Well, Jesus is calling them. When he says, believe also in me, he is calling them to a greater challenge with a more well-informed and vigorous faith. Uh, faith in God, I'm not saying it is in your case, but it, it may be a very shallow thing. But faith in the God who sent Jesus Christ to die upon the cross and to rise victoriously is a more vigorous faith. And that's what Jesus is calling them to. The tremendous things were about to happen. They had known Jesus always as the one in control. And even in danger, Jesus was always master of the situation. And the disciples had seen that many, many times. Now they had to understand that Jesus, their Lord, 
was still all that he proclaimed himself to be, even when it appeared that he was the conquered one. Think about what death meant. Uh, again, they, they, they didn't yet understand that Jesus was to rise from the dead. And so death to Jesus really did seem in their poor understanding the end of all that Jesus had promised. Think about that. When the two on Emmaus are talking about the death of the Lord Jesus, they said we had hoped that he was the one who was going to deliver his people. And that's what we thought about Jesus. And now, now what? They didn't, they didn't understand. So they, they needed, they needed uh, help for their faith. To them, God was supreme. Even over all of the events that would happen in the world. And now they need to regard Jesus in the same way. Believe also in me. Regardless. Regardless. And Jesus gives them evidences. Things on which to hang their faith. He says, believe in me. Here, here we get, we can stretch it out a little bit to help us understand what's going on here. Jesus, as it were, says, I have always spoken the truth to you. I've never lied to you. I've never misled you. I've I spoke the truth to you, so you should believe me. And then he says to them, believe for, my, for the work's sake. He says, think about what I have done. Think about it. Think about my miracles which have occurred. Think about the fact that my miracles attest to my identity as the Son of God. So believe. Believe, he says, for the work's sake. So don't be troubled at any of my statements, which I've made tonight, about the fact that you're going to betray me, that I'm going to undergo the most awful death ever. I'm leaving you. Stop allowing them to cause you to panic. The last thing, we'll look at in these verses is a promise designed to secure hope. A promise designed to secure hope, and that's in verses 2 and 3. It's no mistake that these follow right here because Jesus is again giving them reasons to hope in him and not to be troubled. He says, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go, and remember how he goes, he goes by way of crucifixion, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. It's, it's these, this complex of things Jesus says to the disciples that are to help them not to have a troubled heart and to believe in him despite the fact that he will undergo crucifixion. So, they point the disciples to one reason for Jesus' departure. That's one of the things that he does for them. This is why this is happening. Yes, I'm going to die for the sins of my people. And that was, that was proclaimed throughout the, the gospel period, right? That Jesus came to uh, give his life a ransom for many, right? He, he made that, that clear, though they didn't understand it very well. To the, to the disciples, the crucifixion was the end of their relationship with Jesus. Death of any kind seems to be an irreversible end. 
And uh, they should have known that that was not true about Jesus. And Jesus is telling them here, the end of my human life now is not the end of my relationship with you because one of the things I'm doing, I'm going to die for your sins, yes, but I'm also going to prepare a place for you and to bring you there where we will be together. You see how Jesus is addressing unbelief in making these statements. This is part of the purpose of his death. And the disciples should have understood this to a large extent. Jesus, they had seen Jesus raise men and women from the dead. They had seen, at least Peter, James, and John had seen him raise Jairus' daughter. Everybody knew that girl was dead. And then Jesus took her by the hand and restored her life. They had seen Jesus raise the son of the widow of Nain. They had seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. And those miracles should have been the clue that death could not hold Jesus. It could not. And again, Jesus told them, that he was going to rise again. Now this, they, they didn't understand it. They never debated that claim. Hey, wait a minute. We've never seen somebody bring himself from the dead. We've seen you bring people from the dead, but now death is going to conquer you and you're going to, they didn't debate that with Jesus. They, they never debated his claim. Now they need to trust his word. At this point, Jesus tells them that his departure was more than death. He's going to prepare a place for them and he's going to, return for them and he was going to bring them back to the place where Jesus was preparing he says I have I have a a wonderful place in heaven for you it's the father's house it's the father whom he has been preaching to them about teaching them about he says my father has a house and he has many other houses in it and I'm going to prepare a place for you heaven the dwelling place of God, a place where they will be with Jesus forever. And interestingly, I'll add this little, little bit. Jesus will go on to pray in his high priestly prayer about this. And so it's a wonderful thing to reflect upon Jesus' prayers because Jesus' prayers are certainly going to come true. And this is what he says in John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. So here is Jesus praying in the hearing of the disciples. Lord Jesus, Lord, Father, I want them to be with me where I am and see my glory. That, that should have had an impact upon them. We know, we know that uh, it didn't immediately. But it was one of those things that would help the disciples understand death is not the end of Jesus. It's not. It's not the end of our relationship with Jesus. Jesus has promised us a place in his father's house with him. Well, that's where we're going to stop. In this, uh, we have the, uh, the commands of Jesus and the command not to be troubled. The commands to believe in God and believe in him. And we have Jesus buttressing their faith with the promises and declarations of his, uh, this, these truths. So, as we come to the close this evening, 
consider a couple of lines of application. Here we have the best instruction and exhorted exhortation for troubled Christians. Troubled Christians. Jesus says, when your heart becomes anxious, when you're wondering what's going to happen next, when it seems as though there's nothing but darkness before you, here are the best instructions for troubled Christians. Was there ever a darker hour than these disciples faced? And Jesus was about to be given up and they saw it. They, they saw him arrested. They saw him before the, uh, before the uh, Jewish leaders and Jesus, Jesus doesn't debate with the Jewish leaders. He, they saw him before Pilate. Jesus made no effort to, to defend himself. But Jesus has done this. He has prepared his disciples for seeing through all of these difficulties with these wonderful instructions. Whatever the churches, any churches, City Baptist Church, whatever difficulties we may face here as an effective, an effective encouragement for us in any troubles that we experience. There's effective encouragement for us, which we ought to, we ought to meditate much upon. And this exit, this exhortation of Jesus in this place, it, it reminds us that when we are faced with the worst things that we face, we can take comfort in the Savior's grace. Remember uh, preaching about Romans 7, that latter part of Romans 7, and I asked, uh, what's, the, what's the worst thing that a Christian can experience? What's the world most gut-wrenching thing that a Christian may experience? And you may have different things in your mind. You say, well, that would be the worst thing for me. But the worst thing that we face is the sinfulness of our own hearts. That is, that is the worst thing. And that's the thing which is calculated to discourage us greatly and trouble us greatly. But we can face that greatest trouble, the greatest trouble of our present lives, in the Savior's grace. This is the way John puts it in 1 John 2. Um, I write these things to you that you may not sin. And the Christian says, Amen. Would to God I would never sin again. Would to God. But John goes on to say, If any man sins, we have an advocate with the Father, righteous Jesus Christ. The Christian can face his own sins and let me say this, only the Christian can. Only the Christian can face his sins. There were times when the Christian seems to have, at least in his own evaluation of himself, no answer for his sins. Why do I, why did I do it? Why do I do it? Why do I say some of the things that I say? Why do I, and th this is the perplexity of Paul in Romans, 4, Romans 7. The good that I wish to do, I don't do. The sin that I don't want to do, that I do. He says, I find the law. That when I would do good, evil is present in me. Paul's wrestling with that. And how do you answer that? How do you answer your sins? Well, the answer is 
Jesus Christ. That's the answer. And only the Christian has that answer. Christians don't look at sin and say, okay, I'm going to sin. I, I, I'm going to sin. I'm just, I'm just going to give in. I'm, I don't care. It doesn't matter. Jesus died, so it doesn't matter. That is an awful, soul-destroying attitude towards sin. It's not okay. Never okay. Peter was not encouraged when Jesus told him, you're going to deny me three times. I'm not sure I, un I can understand the perplexity of Peter's soul when Jesus insistently told him. And remember, when Jesus talked that way to Peter, it, was not, it, was, it wasn't mean, but it was firm. It was firm, and it's the word of Jesus. Peter was not encouraged with the, with the fact that it was, it was something he was declared that he would do. He had a hatred of sin. And he was telling Jesus about that. Though everyone else should deny you, I never will deny you. But then he did. He did. How could Peter face himself in the light of that? It was through the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Even when Jesus told him, he had this this amazing note he told Peter, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brethren. That's, that's, a, that's a promise of Jesus. Peter, sin is not going to destroy you. Sin is not going to be your master over you. I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. And that's our hope. Our hope is not in ourselves. Believe it or not, I don't think that my hope is that I'm going to get... I'm going to work harder next time and I'm not going to sin this way next time. My hope is that Jesus prays for me and that Jesus will recover me and that the blood of Jesus will cover my sins. That's the only hope that the Christian has. And if you're unconverted, you ask yourself this question. What do I do with my sins? What do you do with your sins? They stain your conscience. They damage your, your heart. What are you going to do with your sins? There's only one thing to do with them. And that is to bring them to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this is the best instruction for a troubled heart, whether we're talking about uh, financial problems or family problems or our sins. This is the great instruction for our souls. Believe in God. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Second thing by way of application, a great Hope has nothing to do with this present evil world. As Christians, uh, our great hope has nothing to do with this present evil world. It may get better. doesn't seem very likely right now because our, our culture is going down the tubes fast. But uh, you might want to read J.C. Ryle, Christian Leaders of the 18th Century. Ryle has a wonderful book, on that subject where he details cultures. And I've heard these stories from uh, living people, how cultures were going down and revival came and God changed the culture around without political machinery, just the grace of God coming to the souls of men. Yeah, yeah, it's possible. People will become so sick of sin and the gospel will triumph in our culture and God will turn our culture around. We pray to that end. I hope we do. We should. And we may 
work to make our culture better. We're salt and light. God is honored when we serve our generation by the will of God. But our hope, our ultimate hope, is in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and our eternal dwelling with him. Jesus made this prayer. Father, I will that these will be with me where I am, that they may see my glory. And that, brethren, is that is the ultimate, and that's God's end game for us. He's going to raise us from the dead, and he's going to bring us into heaven where we will be in the eternal dwellings with the Lord Jesus Christ and all the saints. That is our great hope. Keep it before your mind. So let me ask you one last question. What hope can match the believer's hope? What? What can match the believer's hope? You may hope in many things. Some of them you may be able to attend, attain. attain. Maybe you'll grow up, be very smart, go to a wonderful school, graduate cum laude, magna cum laude, that is top of your class in the whole school. Maybe you'll get a wonderful job. Maybe you'll meet a wonderful person and get married and have children, live in a beautiful home, drive a wonderful car. The question that keeps on coming up, what's then? What then? What then? What about the end? What about the end that happens to you, that happens to all men and women, boys and girls? Same thing said of all the people who lived before the fall. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. What then? What then if you get all of the accomplishments you wish for in life, and then you die? Outside of Christ. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? What will prepare you for the words that you hear before the throne of God? Depart. What he says to the angels, tie them hand and foot and cast them into outer darkness. You know why? You know why it says that? Because nobody wants to go into outer darkness. They have to be tied hand and foot. And there will be multitudes of people Men and women will be tied hand and foot and cast into outer darkness. The only thing that will rescue you from that plight will be Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ, repentance for your sins, and trusting in his grace. So, believe in God. Believe also in the Lord Jesus Christ because as John writes, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Father, the Son has the Father also. And that's what we pray for you. Let's pray. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for the wonderful words of life we have sometimes sung. Sing them over again to me. Wonderful words of life. Let me more of their beauty see wonderful words of life and we thank you for our gracious lord jesus who in compassion to his people has given us this portion for our comfort and encouragement we pray our god you will help us to keep these things before us to love the lord jesus christ and to believe in the lord jesus christ and to serve your gospel and its grace 
So please bless the things that have been declared this day for the glory and honor of your name and the comfort of your saints, we ask through Jesus our Lord. Amen.